sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this episode with one friend you think might like it too, two, three, four, if you feel like going crazy. Now, as we've explored the issue of how rising debt levels and increasing income inequality have fueled much of the political polarization we see in America today, a lot of this has been largely conjecture. And this is why I was tickled pink to find a study by Nolan McCarty, professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University, that finds a causal relationship between income inequality and political polarization. And as you might guess, I invited him on to discuss this. Now, one note before we get into the episode that I never thought I'd have to say is that we recorded this prior to this week's announcement on a nuclear fusion reactor. So mea culpa in advance. It'll make sense when you listen. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. To start off the conversation, I think it's important for the listener to really understand political polarization and more importantly, I think the facets of it. So in a lot of your work, I've come across you identify really three different types of polarization. And can you talk about what those are and what they mean? Sure. So polarization in general is essentially a tendency towards attitudes, preferences, or behaviors among citizens to move to extremes. So typically political scientists, although we're not often as careful with this as we should be, we parse polarization into various types of things that can be polarized. So the first and most obvious is something you might call policy polarization. That's the idea which voters' preferences or attitudes toward policies move to extremes. So like abortion. So polarization might be a situation in which everyone either thinks that abortion should be completely illegal or legal without any restrictions as opposed to non-polarization, which would be everyone who wants some kind of moderate moderate restriction. So it can be specific to, to policies, taxing, spending, you know, any specific policy. But we often also recognize that voters have kind of underlying ideological orientations, liberal or progressive on one side, conservative, libertarian on the other side. And we can also talk about polarization of those kind of basic values and dispositions. And we'll call that ideological polarization. So when I talk about ideological polarization, I mean, the numbers of conservatives and progressives have gone up relative to the number of people who are centrist on these attitudes. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we can discuss the partisan component of polarization. You can have polarization on policy or ideology without party playing any mediating role whatsoever. You could just uh, you know, have a lot of pro-life, a lot of pro-choice without much in the middle, and it might not have anything to do with party. But when we say party polarization, we mean that the polarization structure around parties, where one side tends to be associated with Democrats and the other side of the issue 
tends to be associated with Republicans. So partisan polarization can be caused by ideological or policy polarization, but it could also be caused by something called sorting, which is just simply the dynamic where all liberals become Democrats and all conservatives become Republicans. So I may talk a little bit about sorting versus polarization. And by that, it simply mean that the parties have realigned themselves on issues. And do these tend to move in tandem with each other? Or are there cases where, for example, maybe policy polarization is low, but partisan polarization is high? Yeah, they, they tend to move together, but they're, they're not the same. And it's very important to distinguish them so that we can learn more about polarization and its causes. So, for example, there can be policy polarization on a lot of different issues, like abortion, taxes, but not on other issues like nuclear energy or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you have variation across the policies and polarization. You could even imagine a world in which ideological polarization is high. You know, a lot of people call themselves conservatives. A lot of people call themselves progressives. But on specific policies, they don't actually disagree very much. So you can have ideological polarization without much policy polarization. And, of course, you can have party polarization just by sorting because if you have differences between liberals and conservatives, as soon as all the conservatives become Republican and all the liberals become Democratic, like we saw from the 1960s through the 1980s, then you have something that looks like partisan polarization. So there are subtle differences. They tend to move together, which is one of the complicated facets of studying them, but it's often important in the specifics to, to disentangle the two. Let me add one other aspect here, uh, just to complicate things slightly more. Okay. Which is that we can we can also talk about partisanship in a way that has not very much to do with the other definitions of polarization. We can think of partisanship as a fundamental social identity, like one's religion or race. And there's a lot of evidence that partisanship has started to act like that. So you can have a lots of partisanship where Republicans love Republicans and hate Democrats and vice versa, but very little polarization in terms of policies or ideology. So it's important to distinguish polarization from partisanship and then the types of polarization that you might see. I, I see that a lot now in conversations. I was, on, I was in, a, in an Uber and I was talking with my Uber driver who was very pro-Trump and we were talking about January the 6th. And I was going back and forth about how this was a dumb move on his part, and he was defending Trump and and whatnot. But when we ended the conversation, I said, really nice talking to you. I wish I had more time to ask questions. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm generally a conservative. And I just thought to my, like, there's nothing conservative about January the 6th. Whether you, whatever you think happened, there's no policy there. So do you think now that partisan identity matters more than any distinct policy. I think there's something to that. I I think the Trump era is somewhat distinctive from some of the history that we might talk about during this podcast. If you think about Donald Trump, so Donald Trump in the 1990s was a Democrat. In 2000, he he was a Reform Party independent. He was publicly pro-choice and publicly pro-gay marriage. In fact, he's the first president to ever be elected 
being pro-gay marriage. He just switched after he got elected. Because <laughs> we, we have to recall that President Obama did not support gay marriage when he was elected in, in 2008. He wanted to not retrench Social Security, but to expand it and wanted to take many of the, what we might call Ryan uh, Romney entitlement reforms out of the Republican Party platform. So in a lot of ways, policy polarization is lower because many Trump conservatives now share those views, yet partisanship is probably, you know, at an, all, at an all-time high. So that's a very good example, you know, with the Uber driver. These things can decouple, and I think they have decoupled. That said, much of the Republican Party's platforms in terms of entitlements, taxes, and so forth have not switched very much, even though they now attract a lot of support from voters who are more downscale and were probably attracted to Trump somewhat by the fact that he took Social Security cuts off the table. One of the things that that I found really interesting about your work was the link you found between growth in the financial sector, specifically growth in wages in the financial sector against the average wage and increases in polarization. And could you walk me and the listener through this and cite a couple of periods in American history where this stands out? Uh, sure. Let me, let me just back up just slightly and talk about how my co-authors and I have been able to trace polarization over time and basically what those data show. So I want to be careful here. I'm talking about polarization at the level of party leaders and party elites. And so the primary measure we use is based on roll call voting in Congress when members of Congress vote on legislation. America is somewhat unique in that we have an almost spotless historical record of how each individual member voted on each piece of legislation since the founding of the republic. But in much of my work, we start in the 1870s and we go through the current period. The 1870s are the, you know, really the consolidation of the Republican Democratic Party system. So we can trace polarization through that by looking at a measure of polarization based on how often members of each party vote with the opposite party. It's the easiest way to think about it. It's a little bit more subtle than that. It's, we try to estimate how conservative or liberal a member is and take the differences across parties. But the basic punchline is that in the 1870s, approximately 10 years after a civil war, polarization was very high. Yeah. <laughs> you had the party that you know, saved the republic uh, versus the, the party that, that seceded. And you would expect the polarization to be very high. And it remained pretty high throughout much of the rest of the 19th century up until about the 1920s when it began to drop and then plummeted following World War II and the Great Depression where it remained at a pretty low level. So we think of that period as one with lots of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans like you guys, Massachusetts <laughs> <laughs> Republicans. And that sustained itself through the late, the late 1970s. And then polarization began escalating for the next 40 years until we reached the period we're in now, such that the levels we measure polarization now are roughly equivalent to those during Reconstruction at the end of the Civil War. So in terms of partisan divisions within Congress, we're, we're close to an all-time high. 
but that's really a, a phenomenon of the last 40 years. There, there was a long period in U.S. history where partisan differences were not quite so large. And the other thing to note is that there are no real breakpoints when we measure polarization. We don't see a big jump in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected. We don't see a big jump when Bill Clinton was elected. We don't see big jumps. They, they tend to be things that kind of move persistently over time in, in particular directions. The only real big jumps are things associated with like the Great Depression and World War II, where there was essentially the collapse, collapsing level of polarization. Mm-hmm. So that's the background of polarization. And so we have these trends that we've measured and they correlate with, as I said, lots of long-term social and political factors that we think are important. Perhaps the most important that we've emphasized is the level of economic inequality in society. So if you think about measures of income inequality, perhaps the most common one, the Gini index of family or household income, a measure that goes from zero when things are perfectly equal to one as soon as Jeff Bezos <laughs> takes over the <laughs> economy. It's grown almost exactly the same way that our polarization measure. It was flat from the 1940s till about 1980, and then they both start going up. If you use like measures like those developed by Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, looking at the top percentage of income, you can go back to 1914, because that's when they adopted income tax. And you can see that polarization was high during the periods in which income inequality was high. It's been low, was low during the period after World War II up to the late 1970s, and then they began increasing uh, close to a, close to in, ta- in tandem. So there does seem to be, and uh, we're not entirely sure, you know, all the mechanisms that drive these links, but there is a, at least a, a statistical association when the economy is unequal, polarization tends to be high. Mm. So on the another thing to think about here, though, when you know when I tell you there's association, you you should ask, what direction does the causality run? Is it that income inequality causes polarization? Is it that polarization, through its channels of undermining the policymaking process and government responses to problems in the economy, does it produce income inequality? And the answer that my co-authors and I have emphasized is that it's really it's really both. There does seem to be this dynamic of income inequality, increasing political conflict, which gets mapped on to the party system. And while at the same time, our political institutions, bicameralism, separation of powers, federalism, all, all of these things that make it very, very hard to respond to social and economic change, polarization tends to make that harder. And so one of the things that you see about the U.S. is that, you know, our policy response to income, rising income inequality was much more uh, restrained than in other Western countries with more unified political systems, parliaments, et cetera. So the causality to, can move in, in, in both directions. So when we try to link up policy areas like financial policy, we're, we're seeing, again, that dynamic of both the chicken and the egg, both, both yeah. playing, playing a, a very a very important role. Um, 
But to your original question, one of the things that correlates very highly with both income inequality and with polarization is essentially the size of the financial sector and what you might call the returns to working in the financial sector. You know, the gap between the wages of people working in finance and people working in similarly similarly technical fields like engineering. Mm -hmm. Basically, again, the premium to working in finance was flat through the 1970s and began increasing in the 1980s along with polarization inequality. We suspect that, again, all all three of those things are working in, in tandem in various ways to produce those relationships. Mm, that's it's funny so my uncle taught math at the university of chicago and over the course of the years he saw more and more of his students go directly to wall street than anywhere else where they maybe went into other fields for example that that has certainly been my uh you know my experience i i sort of it's maybe clear from the type of research i do i'm in this sort of mathy side of political science and uh and those students who that i've had with the kind of quantitative skills for a very long time we're going into finance maybe a topic for another podcast is that seems to no longer be the case they're now going to work for faith for facebook uh and, and google uh but uh you know whether that's a social improvement or not it probably should be left yeah another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think there's a whole tangent i could go down here on how our policies seem to encourage less productive use of capital. So to your point, uh, money goes into Facebook, money goes into the financial sector. And as a result, there's a lot of talent that could be put into other purposes. So for example, you know, for every math PhD who goes to work at JP Morgan or Facebook, they could potentially be working on like a cold fusion reactor or something to that effect. And it's a question of, of, our, of our incentives. There's something interesting you said, which is when you're, when we're talking about polarization, very often we're talking about the level at which partisan elites cooperate with each other. And that may or may not be reflective of the individual voters. I'm, I'm curious, is there an idea that those partisan elites were leading their voters or the other way around? Yeah, we can do similar analyses of trends among voters, and there are two striking things. One is the extent to which there's any kind of manifestation of polarization, whether it's policy polarization or ideological polarization. It occurs later. It doesn't occur in 1978 like we we find among the elites. It occurs closer to 1990, 1992. There's some debate about that. Some people will push those dates in either direction. But there's certainly no consensus, no persuasive consensus that the, the voters polarize first and push the elites in those directions. The second thing is that a lot of what we observe among voters is not so much polarization, as I defined it before, increasing propensities toward extreme views, but what we call partisan sorting. You know, the fact that Southern whites moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party and took the conservatism with them. The middle class progressives of the Northeast went to the Democratic Party and took their progressive pro-labor union views with them. And so we get this kind of sorting. That's starting to change a little bit. I think we are finding more pure polarization among voters. 
as we talked about before, the levels of kind of partisan animosity or affective polarization, emotional polarization among voters, partisanship, those seem to be much higher. And so I think it's possible that while these trends didn't start with the voters, the voters may have moved into the driver's seat, so to speak, and that I think would sort of reach levels of voter polarization, voter sorting into the parties, that it would be hard for leaders to try to try to reverse the reverse this process. But I don't blame the voters for what was going on in the 70s and 80s. I think there was a strategic decisions by both parties to try to purify their parties along ideological lines. It was much more successful in the Republican Party. We often talk about asymmetric polarization because the Republicans became much more conservative than the Democrats became progressive. But that was really, in my view, led by the leadership of those parties, the activists, the leaders. It was not a response to something that was occurring naturally in the electorate. But the electorate's caught on, you know. They now are quite polarized, quite uh, antagonistic towards outpartisans. So we're at a point now where both levels are pretty thoroughly polarized. One of the things I wanted to get back to as well was the 1970s, because according to the data I've seen, according to your research, that's really when bipartisanship or this era of post-World War II bipartisanship just starts to crumble. And by the 90s, we have the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And I'm curious, what do you think happened? I think a large part of it was that the 1970s became kind of a, a, an enigma for the kind of dominant, moderate coalition that persisted during this period of bipartisanship. Basically, you know, both parties were kind of dominated by kind of Keynesian welfareist views. Republicans wanted a little less welfare. Conventional Democrats wanted a little bit more. You know, and the promise of Keynesianism was, you know, the ability to kind of stabilize the macro economy and avoid the pitfalls of the Great Depression and so forth. And yet you get to the 1970s and you have high inflation and high unemployment before war, which relates to both of those things. The urban challenges that came that were also related both to the war and to the economic challenges. And so the, the conventional bipartisan coalition, I think, just started splitting up. You had policy entrepreneurs on both sides, especially on the Republican side, because they were the ones that were always a little bit less invested in the the New Deal, Great Society, you know, synthesis of the post-war era. And so they started coming forward with supply-side economics, tax cuts, trying to build a coalition that was quite different from that. So I, I think rather any one specific event during the 1970s, it, it really is just the collapse of a policy consensus and the striving to, you know, the striving to come up with something else. And in the, the new consensus around tax cuts and deregulation on the right but attracted a lot of voters to those positions and helped sustain it and help move the Republican Party to the right, while at the same time, you know, producing a set of policies that eventually produced massive financial deregulation and, and lots of income inequality and some of the other things that we've seen. There are two things I want to insert here, which is, if we go back to the Great Depression, we go back to FDR's Democratic Coalition, 
In a lot of ways, the, the Democratic Party kind of made a devil's bargain where it consisted of, for the lack of a better phrasing, let's call them more liberal, ideologically liberal folks to the north and pro-segregation Southern Democrats in the South. And that coalition covered a lot of ground and also, I think, in part made for this ideological inconsistency, let's call it, in, in both parties, but, but we'll talk specifically on the Democrats. By 1970, that started to break down, as you mentioned. So there's this whole realignment. Nixon starts wooing and the Republican Party on the whole starts wooing more Southern Democrats, white Democrats who are disenchanted with their party's embrace of civil rights. Now, there's a second thing that happens there, which is Nixon takes the U.S. off the gold standard. And there's a big to-do about that and a lot of, let's call it questionable theories about what that meant. But I think at the end, what it did is it removed any break for the government to have to take in as much as it spends, or at least somewhere close to what it spends. And so there was this period of time where you could be a Republican, cut taxes, and also poo-poo the federal budget, but not really do anything to cut it. And that's a a very long-winded way of leading up to my next question, which is one of the things you you talk about is that elected officials tend to favor policies that are pro-cyclical. So when the economy is hot, they want to keep it going. So for example, when before the financial crisis, they were all for keeping that mortgage machine going until it blew up in their face. And, And I wonder, is this polarization and are the platforms of the parties in periods where income inequality is rising, almost a sideshow in a way. So Nixon ran on law and order, for example, while at the same time, the as you mentioned, a, a huge problem was inflation. And, mm-hmm. and we even see in 2016, what was the election about? It was about immigration. It was about issues that don't necessarily affect a broad swath of Americans. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. So, so a couple, a couple of reactions. I, I mean, I think those are obviously the southern realignment and the and so northeastern realignment is an important part of the story. Although, one of the things we can do statistically is measure how much, and it explains part, but not all of the trends. But it's, it's hard to dismiss that effect. Mm-hmm. One thing reaction I have to the policy link to polarization is I think important here is that. The dogs that don't bark are really what's the important policy connections. The things that Congress doesn't, specifically Congress, because Congress is the institution, policymaking institution that for which polarization affects. But the things that Congress doesn't do become very important. So take financial deregulation. Very little of the important policies that undergirded deregulation were done by Congress. They were done in regulatory agencies. They were done at the Fed. They were done at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, et cetera. The one piece of legislation that often gets blamed here is the Commodity Futures Modernization Act in the mm-hmm. late 1990s. But that basically ratified things that you know the Federal Reserve and other regulatory agencies had made de facto true for a very long time. So people say, well, it allowed investment banks and insurance companies, commercial banks to merge. Well, the regulatory agencies were pretty much already allowing that that to happen. So the fact that, you know, Congress was polarized and, you know, it was basically 
following the parade rather than leaving the parade may well have had some impact on, on the amount of deregulation we saw. It, it, it helped that financial firms didn't actually have to go to Congress and get affirmative legislation to do what they wanted to do. They could work on the agencies in a polarized environment in which agencies could do things that Congress lacked the capacity to override. So, so the policy impacts of polarization are not that because we're polarized, Congress passes policy X. It's because we're polarized and Congress doesn't act, and therefore presidents and regulatory agencies and states do things that you know exacerbate uh, income inequality or financial deregulation. So, so the the policy link can be a subtle one because it's often what doesn't happen that drives things. Um, let me talk about your other prong to your question, which are really about kind of wedge issues. The fact that even though I've given a very economic story about polarization, we often associate polarization with debates about abortion or sexuality or the role of religion, life, gender, or so the whole set of them, which the parties are polarized on. I think it's fair to say that for many voters, those are the issues they care about when they choose candidates and parties, and a lot of polarization among the voters concerns that, and that may be true as well as the candidates. But yet we see, still see almost kind of perfect polarization, uneconomic issues. And so the thing that question asks is the ways in which those cultural divisions reinforce the party's divisions on economics. So mm. I'll give you one, one example of why I still think the economics is an important part of the story. So Grover Norquist, this anti-tax policy activist, encouraged almost every Republican candidate to sign a pledge not to vote for a tax increase. I don't know whether they still do the pledge or not because it's kind of moot because no Republican ever wants to vote to increase taxes. But he got to 100% compliance on the tax pledge but Republicans until 2010, 2012, never got to 100% support of the pro-life position on abortion. There's always more division on abortion within the Republican Party than there was on tax rates, at least at the level of Congress. So I, I think that can, at least at the policy level, there's more purity among the parties on the economics than the, the social. Same thing can be said for the Democratic Party, which had a very large set of pro-life Democrats through the 2010s. <clears throat> On the role of the wedge issues, I, I think that they actually contribute in some ways to the economic division. So a grad student of mine named Andrew Mack made a very clever observation, which I think is very important for explaining some of this. So to lay the background a little bit, Income distributions are often skewed in the following way, which is that there are more people who make, say, $10,000 less than the median income than there are people who make $10,000 more than the median. So mm -hmm. it's because there are a lot of poor people and a few rich people. So, you know, when you divide the population in half, there are more people who make slightly less than make slightly more. So if you have a wedge issue, which leads slightly poorer voters to vote Republican for the more upscale economic policies, Republicans are going to pick up more voters than they lose because there are more people who are slightly poorer than average than there are people who are slightly richer than average. Mm -hmm. 
so anytime there's a wedge issue that kind of forces people to kind of vote on some other consideration, it tends to benefit the party of the rich because that means the party of the rich is going to get more poor voters than they should otherwise get. And there are more poor voters, so they're going to gain more than they lose. So in that context, it's not surprising that Republican elites would highlight the sorts of issues that would get them more lower income voters who are voting on things other than taxes and regulation. It also mm-hmm. explains why Republicans tend to be more extreme on economics than Democrats, because if they have this advantage on these cultural issues, they can take more conservative stances on regulation and taxes and maintain support among their lower income, culturally conservative voters so they can mm-hmm. do so without penalty. And that's also something we find in the data, which is that the Republican Party has moved to the right on economics much more than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. It's interesting the way that happened, too, because just to cite more of your research, one of the things you cite is how there was this economic sorting that happened in the Republican Party between 1970 and 2000. So there was a period of time where your income bracket didn't reflect your partisan lean, that started to change. And you saw more wealthy people on the Republican side, more lower income, middle income people on the Democrat side. And this would have been right around the time when I was getting in political arguments with Massachusetts Union Democrats over, you name it, whatever policy we were talking about. Now, we get to 2020, and that's entirely flipped. And what I've seen of the Union Democrat crowd or the former Union Democrat crowd is a lot of them have flipped over to Trump and a lot of them flipped over to the Republican Party. And I'm curious, do you feel like this is an effect of those wedge issues? Because the one thing I would say about the Union Democrat crowd is they were economically liberal, but they were more socially conservative, I think. And you even see that reflected in the Massachusetts congressional delegation today. We have, I think, the only pro-life Democrat in the House right now. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think I think it, it really does have to do with the kind of increasing salience of those issues. I mean, one of the things that we're really focused on these days is urban versus rural polarization. So one of the things that really happened is that rural areas have gotten markedly more Republican as urban areas have gotten more Democratic, and that has to do with a set of wedge issues and cultural arguments as well. And so I think the same is true of your union pals. So I should explain what we actually see in the data when you go back and look at this. So think about partisanship being determined by two factors. One is your income and the other is your level of education. We can think of level of education as both uh, contributes to your income and makes your income bigger. You have more of it. But it also comes with a set of social values that distinguish you from people with less education, just, you know, on average. I mean, so people with college degrees are more liberal on sexuality and abortion. They're more in favor of gun control, you name it. So what we saw going back to the late 1990s is that the role of income was increasing in terms of determining your partisanship. The role of college was one which was still that if you had more education, you were more likely to vote Republican, even with, you know, even when you're looking at both income and college. 
But the effect of college education, I should say, completely flipped over the course of the 2000s. It basically went from a situation where Republicans were getting more college-educated voters controlling for income than to a situation where controlling for income level education didn't matter very much. So the situation we have now, which is that income is still an important factor, but it's kind of been swamped by the fact that the college-educated population has moved so closely towards the Democratic Party, presumably mostly for kind of social, cultural issues, environmental issues to some extent. So again, if you control for education, income still matters. Two people with the same education, the one with a higher income is more likely to be Republican. But the effect of education has just become so large in a pro-democratic way that if you just look at the correlation with income and partisanship, it's basically disappeared. So the real story, I think, is the changing role of education. The past 20 years have been ones in which college-educated voters have really responded negatively towards the wedge issues that have been raised by the Republican Party. And it's really accelerated under President Trump. Um, you know, party, Republican Party is still attractive to high-income inc- high voters controlling for college, but, you know, the, the impact of the college education has become a real force for the Democratic Party. To restate what you just said, it sounds like in my quest to get the Gini coefficient of the United States all the way up to 0.99, for example, I have to embrace policies that serve a smaller and smaller group of people. And so if I'm in the party that's favoring those policies, I really need to rely on another set of policy differences in order to gain voters, which have been predominantly social uh, for the most part. Now, there's something interesting here, which is, and this is something I've observed, is that if you look at blue states and you look at red states, you have a group of people who are relatively wealthier and want their taxes raised so they can give it to people in less wealthy parts of the country who don't want it and are endorsing policies that would keep that from happening. And I'm, I'm curious when... If you look back at like the 1920s, the last time income inequality was so high, there were a lot of people who embraced very left-wing policies. So people embracing communism, socialism, so on. Why hasn't that happened now? I think it's a great. I think it's a great question. I think in large part, one of our arguments has been: well, income inequality has really grown in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. This is slightly controversial statement, but overall. The U.S. has become wealthier, and so mm-hmm. men's wages stagnated. The extent to which they stagnated is a debate about that, but female labor force participation went way up, so household and family incomes continued to grow. And so I don't think, even though income equality was getting higher, I don't think you've got the level of kind of immiseration that you would need to endorse communist mm. revolution, if we take the, if we take the e- extreme example. That may be changing, of course. I mean, the data shows that socialism as a concept is much more common now in the post-Great Recession era, where people were hit financially much harder than they had been in, in, from the, the 1980s to the 2000s. But that's, that's one aspect of it. 
another aspect of it is that we haven't talked about immigration. Immigration in its own right is a very important polarized issue. But one aspect of polarization I think gets missed is that it's led to a situation where a very large proportion of the residents of the United States are ineligible to vote. So something like one in 12, one in 10 residents of the United States are ineligible to vote because of immigration status. So when we think about income inequality, those are often the people who are at the bottom of the income distribution. So mm. there's a real impediment to mobilizing people around you know, big redistributed programs when you know a very big chunk of the people who might stand to benefit from those programs uh, because of the, can't participate because of their immigration status. I think both of those things together, you know, are important reasons why. But as I mentioned, post Great Recession, I think we're seeing more embrace of bigger ideas. I mean, I don't want to equate the Green New Deal to you know communism or anarchism <laughs> over the 1920s. But, Some would, but, but it, yeah. But it is a distinct departure from the post-World War II discourse in the United States. There's there something you said, too, that I wanted to just hone in on for a second, which is you mentioned how America's wealthier were more prosperous. And I think one thing you often hear from conservative circles is when you talk about income inequality or wage stagnation is they say, well, look, like everybody's got an air conditioner and everybody's got a widescreen TV and look at how great it is. Why is income inequality such a problem for society and, and for the political system in general? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that should also pay attention to is that not everyone has not everyone has health care. <laughs> not everyone has access to high quality public schools. I mean, so there's you get you know equality and cell phone usage is great great aspiration for society, but it's not the only it's not the only aspiration for society. Yes, I could I could play Tetris while I'm dying of my untreated diabetes. <laughs> exactly. So, so 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 putting aside that argument. I think that even in, in a situation where, you know, society is growing, most basic goods are met for most people, income inequality would still have a negative effect on our politics because people's perceptions about what a reasonable standard of living is and what economic fairness dictates will differ and there will be conflicts over over what is economically fair, what is equal opportunity, should people be able to upgrade from their flip phones to iPhones. And so those debates will never disappear. I, I say, uh, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle on these kind of uh, ethical debates on in income inequality. I'm not egalitarian. I find some sympathy with some of the arguments that conservatives make that it's not as bad as it seems. It was a big production of the New York Times earlier this week showing how much child poverty had fallen in the United States over the past 20 years. And so I don't want to say income inequality is everything and that everything is bad, but I, I think even in a, in a world in which all basic needs were met, there are going to be debates about fairness and distribution that are going to find, their, find themselves politicized and impact the ability of us to govern ourselves in light of those debates. 
I think if you look at the the founding of of the United States, the founders in their own way were brilliant psychologists and really, I think, understood human nature. And I think if you look at studies of human behavior, you'll find that fairness is ingrained in us and the idea of what's fair and what isn't. And to an extent, equity is part of that. So for example, there are studies that show that people will people would rather take no money than take half the money somebody else is getting for the same task, for example. And I think that that's, that's part of it. So yep. when, you're yeah, when you're struggling to pay for daycare, you're wondering how you're going to put your kid through school, and then you see somebody launching themselves into space, you kind of start to feel a little resentful. One last question I have for you, which is in the beginning, you talked about the levels of polarization. And again, we were talking about elites, and to an extent, we we're talking about their voters. I'm curious, do you think there's a genuine middle in America? Because a lot of what I, when I look at issues like guns, abortion, and so on, there seems to be a lot of nuance there. And you even see party enrollment has fallen drastically to the point where the largest voting block is independent. Is that real or is everybody just as polarized and there's just a large group of people who don't want to wear the label? So there's some debate about this. I think the latest best evidence shows that we've sort of underestimated how much of the middle is left, at least among voters. Mm. So we used to, you know, poo-poo moderates. So they're not really moderates. They're just confused people <laughs> who just can't pick a side. That independents are either confused or closeted partisans. And mm -hmm. therefore, we don't have a real conscientious, engaged middle. I think that was an over given recently, sir. That was a that was a vast overstatement. There are people with coherent, moderate views across a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. They do switch from voting Democrat to Republican. They tend to be pivotal in elections, so it is there. Although, I, I mean, I think that kind of moves the puzzle of elite polarization a little bit higher, in that there are this kind of group of voters who are been kind of reduced to just playing referee between two polarized parties. Mm -hmm. led a lot of people think, well, what can we do to allow those moderate independent forces to be more influential in politics rather than being just the force that decides which extreme platform they're going to, that they're going to pick. It's where a lot of the electoral reform movements have focused on a lot of things out there are discussing multi-member districts or proportional representation or ranked choice mm -hmm. voting. I don't think those things are proving very easy to do. And then some of the reform ideas have been a little bit oversold. But I, mm -hmm. I think the idea of thinking of ways in which to make moderates and independents more impactful is worth thinking about. You know, there's a experiment going on in New Jersey now. They've created the moderate party of New Jersey, and they're going to act as a kind of a, a fusion party, much like the liberal and conservative parties and working family parties of New York. They're going to endorse those major party candidates that meet their values. If their values actually are moderate, maybe that will be a way of organizing moderates around a particular set, particular sets of candidates. But it won't be easy. Our constitutional system is not very well-suited to lots of electoral innovations, but we'll see whether there are things around the margins that can bring out those voices more than they have in the past. 
Yeah, well, as someone who voted for John McCain in 2008 and phone bank for Biden in 2020, the, the best idea I have is start a podcast. So I hope somebody start else comes up with something better yeah. than that. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. As I mentioned before, this podcast grows by word of your mouth. I've also included a link to Nolan's study in the show notes. So check that out if you're interested in diving deeper. Now, as we discussed, the size of the financial sector relative to the economy is a predictor of political polarization. And if we look at the rise of polarization over the last 50 years, it seems as if it started with the party elites and eventually worked its way down to the point where we now all hate each other. Now, what's different about the current era as opposed to that of the run-up to the Great Depression is Americans have fewer policy options to choose from. Political elites were somewhat forced to compromise as Americans gravitated towards anarchism, communism, and other radical ideologies in the early part of the 20th century. And from my conversation with Nolan, it seems as if now partisan identity has morphed with social identity, making our political decisions uh, more a personal issue than one of policy. And there are echoes in some of the earlier episodes I did with Ben Studebaker. You can check those out if you haven't listened already, where we discuss how culture issues are often used as a replacement for policies that might improve people's lives and allow those in office to avoid implementing policies that might affect those at the top of the income ladder. Now, as Nolan mentioned, our government is more restrained than other wealthy countries, making our response to issues of income inequality slower. And given the destabilizing effects of polarization that we saw on January 6th, being the government that governs least might not be an advantage. Now, one last note, as we learned in last week's episode with Carrie King, an increase in energy availability could potentially rectify some of the issues we're seeing around income inequality in the country. So the announcement that we've been able to produce energy from nuclear fusion couldn't be better, even if it's a ways away from being commercially viable. As always, the music is courtesy of Qualertac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.